Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we are continuing with Russia in Revolution as we go through a chapter where the Bolsheviks have moved away from their policies of war communism and are trying to find new ways of adjusting the economy to further their ideals while dealing with the reality of the situation they find themselves in. So let's get started. New economic policy and industry. Nearly all large industry, along with the banks and wholesale trade, remained in state hands, and most investment outside agriculture was financed by the state. The industrial branch boards, Glavki, under the Supreme Council of National Economy, were dismantled and replaced by trusts, which were associations of enterprises in the same branch of industry. By the end of 1922, there were 421 of these. State enterprises under the trusts were subject to commercial accounting, whereby they could retain any revenues they made, but also must bear any losses. The slashing of state subsidies in 1924, in a drive to bring prices under control, nearly led to the closure of the iconic Putilov works. 80% of trusts were organized into syndicates, which already existed under Tsarism in certain capital goods sectors, which facilitated marketing, supplies, and finance for foreign trade deals, and generally controlled sales and wholesale prices. By 1928, 23 such syndicates controlled the bulk of wholesale trade. One of the most radical initiatives was to allow foreign firms the right to use state enterprises. In 1926-27, there were 117 such concessions, many of them German, which were mainly involved in extractive industries, such as lead, silver, gold, and manganese. However, these concessions failed to generate substantial foreign investment. More significantly, NEP allowed small factories and artisanal enterprises to return to private enterprise or into cooperative ownership. However, in Moscow by 1924, only a fifth of the city's workforce was employed in the cooperative or private sectors compared with around four-fifths employed in 422 state enterprises. Moreover, the attempt to subject the state sector to market disciplines was half-hearted. Even in the first half of the 1920s, enterprises under commercial accounting were deprived of complete independence, insofar as state organs increasingly fixed wholesale industrial prices and a growing number of retail prices allocated credit, attempted to regulate wages, imposed controls on imports, and sought to oversee the country's economic development through an annual state plan. So-called control figures. Footnote 22. Nevertheless, NEP led to a rapid recovery of industry, especially in war-torn areas such as the Donba, the Baku oil fields, the Urals, and Siberia the index of industrial production tripled between 1921 and 1926, and by the economic year 1926-27, production in large-scale industry surpassed the pre-war level. 
the output of small-scale industry, now largely in private hands, constituted 30% of gross industrial production. Footnote 23. Net industrial investment increased. It was perhaps 20% higher by 1927-28 than in 1913. But it is reckoned that two-thirds of investment came from the state budget. So it came at the expense of investment in housing and transport. However, the costs of industrial production were 2 to 2.5 times higher in 1926 than they had been in 1913, owing to aging capital stock and the quality of output was poorer. Footnote 24. There was some reduction in industrial costs by 1927 to 28, but only relative to the extremely high costs of the preceding years. By 1928, gross national income had reached the pre-war level, though it is less certain that this is so if measured on a per capita basis. Footnote 25. Overall, therefore, the record of NEP in industry was mixed. It undoubtedly engendered a rapid recovery of industry, in some ways remarkable given the dire straits into which industry had sunk by 1920. Crucially, however, it failed to narrow the gap in production per head between the Soviet Union and the advanced industrial countries, and the technology gap between them widened during the 1920s. By 1928, it was clear that neither the state nor private capital could raise the funds necessary for the big expansion of factories, mines, or oil extraction that was felt to be urgently required within the framework of NEP. In contrast to capitalism, socialist industrialization was supposed to be carried out in a rational fashion, through central planning, specialization, and universal norms. Since 1917, there had been talk of a single economic plan, and despite the turn to the market, planning began in earnest in the 1920s. Lenin was especially enthusiastic about the plan for the electrification of the country, proposed by Gleb Kurzizanovsky, who had managed to combine an active career as a Bolshevik with overseeing the installation of the electricity network in Moscow in 1912-14. Lenin hailed electrification as a step that, quote, will link town and countryside, will make it possible to raise the level of culture in the countryside and overcome, even in the remote corners of the land, backwardness, ignorance, poverty, disease, and barbarism." End quote. The image of the peasant seeing his first light bulb was immortalized in posters, stamps, and on lacquer boxes. Thus, despite the radicalism of the privatization measures introduced by NEP, major organs of government, the Council of Labor and Defense, the Supreme Council of National Economy, and the New State Planning Commission, Gosplan, chaired by Kurzyzanovsky, worked to lay the ground for state-directed industrialization. One of the currents within Bolshevik ideology, sometimes called productivist, came to the fore during NEP. Footnote 26. This saw the advance to socialism as predicated on central planning and on the application of science and technology to the development of the productive forces. 
Productivism regarded the social organization of labor inherited from capitalism, with its particular technologies and techniques to raise productivity as politically neutral. One of its more curious expressions was the vogue for NOT, or the Scientific Organization of Labor, a Soviet appropriation of F.W. Taylor's theory of scientific management. Advocates of NOT argued that in Soviet Russia, what Lenin had once called the refined brutality of Taylorism could be applied to tackle the most fundamental source of the country's backwardness, namely, the desperately low level of labor productivity. One of its chief proponents was A.K. Gastev, a former syndicalist and worker poet, who in 1920 became the director of the Central Institute of Labor. He dreamed of a socialist society in which man and machine would merge. Quote, in the social sphere, we must enter the epoch of precise measurement, formulae, blueprints, controlled calibration, and social norms. End quote. In 1923, a Time League was formed to agitate for the more economical use of time. Quote, Instead of, perhaps, a precise calculation. Instead of, anyhow, a thought-out plan. Instead of, somehow, a scientific method. Instead of, sometime, on the 25th of October at 2035. The latter reference being, of course, to the storming of the Winter Palace. End quote. Footnote 27. The productivist vision did not go unchallenged. When Gazdev proclaimed in 1928 that, quote, the time has gone beyond recall when one could speak of the freedom of the worker in regard to the machine and still more in regard to the enterprise as a whole. End quote. Critics at the 8th Komsomol Congress condemned this conception of the worker as indistinguishable from that of Henry Ford. And with the onset of the first five-year plan in 1928, the impulse to make science the arbiter of industrial relations came increasingly to conflict with the heroic, volunteerist strain within Bolshevism that lauded revolutionary will and collective initiative. Although socialist competition and storming did not become the order of the day until the onset of the first five-year plan, 1928 to 32, as early as 1926, shock brigades in the Ukrainian metallurgical industry and the Triangle Rubber Factory in Leningrad set out to bust scientifically calculated production norms. With NEP, the tight controls over labor associated with militarization in the Civil War were lifted, but at the same time, managerial hierarchies were restored within state-owned enterprises. The board of each trust now appointed a single director to run each enterprise under the trust, although in 1922, nearly two-thirds of these red directors, as they were known, were former workers. Footnote 28. The director was expected to run the enterprise in collaboration with its party cell and the trade union committee, and the latter were expected to support him in his efforts to revive and expand production. 
Along with this came an assertion of the importance of technical and managerial expertise, such as Lenin had argued for since 1918. Workers continued to view the Spetsi with suspicion. Quote, the red specialists behave worse than the old owners. They never greet us as they pass by, whereas the boss used to chat and shake our hand. End quote. Footnote 29. NEP also saw the power of the foreman substantially restored to the shop floor, although not to the extent that had been appertained under Tsarism. Cases of foremen behaving rudely to workers and demanding bribes and sexual favours quickly resurfaced. In 1927, miners in Shakti in the Danba rebelled against an order they received to work 12-hour shifts to fulfil new production targets. Their rallying cry was, quote, Beat the communists and the spetsi, end quote. During the first five-year plan, the regime would cleverly exploit worker resentment against Spetsi to stiffen support for socialist construction. Footnote 30. Lenin had proclaimed in 1918 that, quote, the Russian worker must learn how to work, end quote. And the 1920s saw a determined drive to overcome low labor productivity by reorganization of the labor process. The low level of productivity was due to a number of factors, including primitive technology, wear and tear on machinery, low levels of skill, and, not least, poor labour discipline. Sometimes the latter was due to the restoration of traditional patterns of industrial relations, as in the textile industry of the central industrial region, where the symbiotic relationships between field and factory revived and work groups based on family or village reasserted themselves. Footnote 31. The campaign to raise labour productivity entailed increasing output by reducing peace rates and increasing output norms, and, more slowly, by introducing greater mechanization, standardization, and specialization in production. Time Study Bureau were brought into the factories, and psychophysiologists, psychotechnicians, and labor hygienists sought to measure and improve the output per worker in a fixed span of time. Achievement fell well short of aspiration, yet by 1927, the rationalization drive had pushed up average hourly labor productivity to 10% above its 1913 level. Footnote 32. One baleful consequence was that the industrial accident rate also shot up from an average of 26 per 1,000 for the principal industries in 1925 to 443 by 1927 although fatalities fell in the same period. Footnote 33. New Economic Policy and Labour By 1926, the numbers employed in large-scale industry, 3.1 million, construction, 0.2 million, and railways, 0.9 million, had recovered to approximately the level of 1913. Of the total number of waged workers, including white-collar employees, in 1926, 7.8 million were employed in the state sector and just 1.8 million in the private sector. Footnote 34. 
The number of waged workers rose steadily, from 6.7 million in 1924-25 to 10.4 million in 1929. Footnote 35. Significantly, in the RSFSR, white-collar employees grew as fast as blue-collar workers, each constituting about 26% of the urban population in 1926. Footnote 36. By 1929, there were 3.82 million industrial workers, of whom 31.1% were in textiles and 26.6% in metalworking and machine building. It was reckoned that only 18.5% of the industrial workforce was skilled, the rest being semi or unskilled. The proportion of women, 28.7%, was somewhat lower than in 1913. Footnote 37. The regime set in place a corporatist system of industrial relations, comprising representatives of management and the trade unions in which wages and working conditions were to be regulated through collective agreements, and disputes resolved through rates and conflict commissions, with the restoration of a labour market and the right of the trade unions to bargain over wages and conditions, including the right to strike, was gradually restored. The NEP made trade union membership voluntary, and initially the number of trade unionists fell from 8.4 million in 1921 to 4.5 million in October 1922, many of the dropouts being artisans who were excluded for being owners of means of production. Thereafter, membership rose steadily to reach 11 million by 1928, and it embraced employees well beyond the industrial workforce. Footnote 38. This indicates that workers recognised the benefit of being a trade union member, not least because the unions now administered welfare benefits, holidays, promotion and educational opportunities. The number of female trade unionists doubled to reach 2.57 million by 1927. But despite rules and quotas designed to protect the interests of women and youth, the needs of these groups were subordinated in practice to those of adult male workers from the mid-1920s. Footnote 39. The unions lost their voice in policy making, but they could still contest management decisions through the rates and conflict commissions and through the courts. In 1924, the Sixth Congress of Trade Unions condemned the so-called regime of economy for worsening working conditions. And as late as 1928, the unions successfully resisted the upward revision of output norms. The unions were expected to prevent conflicts from breaking out, but it was not unknown for them to back workers in disputes. In general, they, along with other mass organisations, were expected to educate workers in the official ideology and to act as transmission belts between the party and the masses a mechanistic image that suggested that the party state drove the machinery of society. A paradoxical development of the 1920s was that unemployment rose even as the numbers in employment also rose. It was a major problem that particularly affected women, which was mitigated only slightly by the introduction in 1922 of rudimentary unemployment insurance. 
1924, the number out of work had reached 1.4 million, mainly due to the demobilization of the Red Army and to the pressure on enterprises to achieve economic accounting. The number out of work dropped slightly in the mid-1920s, but returned to the 1924 level by January 1927, accounting for over 10% of the workforce. In 1928, the figure rose still higher. Footnote 40. By this stage, the cause was the resumption of migration from the countryside to the towns. In 1928, over a million people settled permanently in the cities, and there were an additional 3.9 million seasonal migrants. Footnote 41. This resumption of the pre-war pattern of migration worsened an already acute housing situation and put strain on the rudimentary network of welfare services. The number of women in employment rose during the 1920s, but their share of the workforce, just under 30%, remained smaller than it had been during the First World War. The Soviet Union became the first country in the world to introduce equal pay, so women's wages rose relative to the pre-war period. Yet in 1928, women's average daily earnings were still only two-thirds those of men. In part, this was a reflection of women's low skills, but it was notwithstanding trade union policy, a reflection, too, of job discrimination. In the early 1920s, the unions insisted that women should not be the first to be laid off in the event of redundancies. The printers' union, for example, declared, quote, We should never place a woman in dependence on the work of her husband, since this inserfs her materially and therefore morally, turning her into a slave. End quote. Footnote 42. From around 1925, however, as unemployment persisted, decisions on who should be laid off first were increasingly made on the basis of family need, and inevitably, it tended to be wives rather than husbands who lost their jobs. Women seemed to have accepted this, not least because they generally earned less than their menfolk but it is noteworthy that the regime adapted to this family-based perspective. It should also be noted that women's unemployment was in part a consequence of the decline in domestic service. In 1912, twice as many women worked in domestic service as in factories, but the number fell during the war. Footnote 43. From the end of the Civil War, the number of domestic workers, as they were now known, grew steadily, and by 1929, 527,000 women lived in with their employers, or less commonly, came to work on a daily basis. This was only half the pre-war figure, but it represented 16% of employed women. Domestic workers were employed by professionals, netmen, party officials, and even by workers, since their labor was cheap. Now, though, domestic workers were protected by legislation and defended by trade unions, even if their living conditions and treatment by employers often fell short of official standards. Footnote 44. In important respects, workers' lives improved during the 1920s. 
Trade union members enjoyed free medical care, maternity allowances, disability pensions, and other benefits. Real wages struggled to reach their pre-war level, but subsidized rents and transport meant that most workers were probably better off. Perhaps the greatest improvement was the achievement of an eight-hour working day, a demand first raised by the labor movement in 1905. Working conditions in privately owned factories, though often criticized in the press, do not seem to have been any worse than in-state enterprises, mainly because they were now subject to a system of labor inspection, social insurance, and tax inspection. Footnote 45. By 1927, most workers were eating better than they had 10 years earlier. Official figures suggest that per capita consumption of bread had fallen, but that consumption of meat, dairy products, and sugar had risen. Even so, eggs and dairy produce remained luxuries for many. Footnote 46. This bird's eye view may mask a bleaker reality since one factory survey showed that on average men and women weighed 5 kilograms less than the norm, and that calorific intake was no better than it had been in the 1890s, and in 1928 to 29, shortages of food would once again become a problem, and the institution of the queue for subsistence items would become a standard feature of Soviet life. Labor intensification, cuts in peace rates, highly differentiated wage scales, and shortages of consumer goods were hardly likely to enthuse the average worker, however necessary they may have been as means to industrialize a backward, internationally isolated society. Not surprisingly, there was no shortage of collective protest, albeit on a sectional basis. Up to 1924, the key cause of strikes was delay in the payment of wages. Thereafter, it was reductions in wage rates, increases in output norms, and changes in the organization of production. Footnote 47. According to official figures, strikes peaked in the USSR in 1922, when there were 431 stoppages, involving 197,215 strikers. Thereafter, the number fell to 196 in 1925, involving 37,600. Then rose to 396 in 1927, involving 25,400 workers before falling sharply in 1928 to 90 strikes and 9,700 strikers. Footnote 48. Even if the number of strikes in the second half of the 1920s was higher than these figures indicate, it is clear that stoppages became fewer, shorter, and smaller in scope. The regime thus seems to have been successful in avoiding outright stoppages by channeling worker dissatisfaction through the Rates and Conflict Commissions. The threat of unemployment was doubtless a factor that deterred workers from taking strike action. Other factors may have been the co-option of potential leaders through their promotional and into semi-official positions as well as the diffuse ideological influence exercised in state enterprises by the party cells and trade unions. 
in the private sector, which mainly comprised small workshops, a further factor depressing levels of industrial conflict was that relations between workers and employers were still paternalistic. In Tula, the party provincial committee reported that, quote, between 30 and 40% of workers follow their bosses and consider him their benefactor. End quote. Footnote 49. Finally, the likelihood of arrest was also doubtless a deterrent factor, although after 1924 there was less recourse to suppression of strikes than there had been during the Civil War. Crucial to understanding the decline in collective protest, however, was the change in political context. In Tsarist times, labour militancy had reflected the fact that economic struggles were easily politicised, the factory being construed as a microcosm of the wider autocratic order. This was, obviously, no longer the case. A regime was now in power that hailed the working class as the leading class in society, vested with the task of building socialism. Yet, in a different way, this ideological positioning of the working class also facilitated the fusion of economic and political grievances, for workers expected better working and living conditions from a regime that purported to rule in their name. It is not easy to generalise about workers' political attitudes during NEP. It is likely that enthusiastic supporters of the regime comprised a sizable minority mainly those active in the workplace party cell, trade union, or the Komsomol. A guess would be that they constituted no more than one-fifth of the workforce, including the one in ten workers who by 1928 had joined the Communist Party. These were idealists, though they also had reason to see their own advancement as proof that socialism was being built. In addition, a small percentage of politically engaged workers saw NEP as a betrayal of the ideals of socialism, those orienting to Trotsky's left opposition. Footnote 50. At the other extreme was a large minority who were apathetic, apolitical, and alienated from the regime. If they had a political orientation, it was likely to be towards nationalism. These were the workers that the official ideology categorized as backward. The male representatives of this group resented official campaigns, such as those against alcohol, against what we would now call male chauvinism, or against anti-Semitism. Among this group, for example, complaints were rife to the effect that the regime gave Jews preferential treatment in respect of promotion, education, and jobs in the state administration. Quote, there are only Jews on the board of the Textile Trust, and they defend their brothers and oppress Russians. End quote. Footnote 51. In between were the majority of workers who believed that the government should rule on their behalf, but who were dispirited by the gap between official rhetoric and reality. These workers were not hardened opponents of the regime. Turnout in elections to urban Soviets, for example, rose from a low of 36.5% in 1922 to 59.5% in 1926 to 27. Footnote 52. This majority welcomed the improvements to their living and working conditions that were being made, but felt that they were too few and too slow. 
In particular, they were bitter in their criticism of the privileges enjoyed by party, government, and economic officials. In Gomel, workers were reported as saying, quote, Soviet power doesn't defend us. The communists are like the nobility, a special privileged class who hold power and enjoy all the good things of life. End quote. More politically sophisticated were criticisms that held the leadership to account for its failure to abide by the ideals of the revolution. Quote, Who can rate the chances for socialism when a worker earns 30 rubles and expends much physical energy, whereas those in power earn 300 rubles? End quote. Footnote 53. Such criticism, centering on the absence of equality and collectivism, reflected the gap between workers' aspirations and the realities of NEP, and probably a majority of workers sympathized with this sentiment. At the same time, this majority continued to espouse the ideal of Soviet power. The contradictoriness of worker attitudes provides a clue to why collective protest was less frequent than one might have expected. Leaving aside the fear of reprisals, many workers in some inchoate way still believed that the regime was theirs. This attitude was underpinned by the fact that in spite of poor living and working conditions, they were relatively privileged compared with other social groups. Moreover, official propaganda constantly hammered home the idea that the proletariat was now the ruling class, and therein lay the rub for class had become a problematic language for the articulation of worker grievances in a way that had not been true up to 1917. Workers could still use it, especially to condemn the official privilege, but the most powerful exponent of the language of class, with power to determine its strategic uses through the mass media, organs of censorship, schools, and the like, was the state itself and through the use of categories such as conscious and backward, through the condemnation of many entirely reasonable grievances as an expression of petty bourgeois consciousness, or even, arabile dictu, of counter-revolutionary Menshevism. The regime was able to erode the political potency of the language that in 1917 had served to knit together the disparate elements of the workforce into a self-conscious class. And that is going to do it for this week. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find his work on soundimage.org. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.